Hello, and welcome to this virtual roundtable for World Mental Health Day 2020 on the theme of mental health for all. I'm David Clyde Price, mental well-being mentor, life coach, and author of uh, the recent book, Hidden Demons, how to overcome fear, anxiety, and addictions to thrive in uncertain times, which is being officially launched today. So I thought to begin with, I'd give a overview of the current mental health situation in the world as I see it in the book, and just read uh, three or four paragraphs from the opening chapter on prioritizing your mental health. Mental health issues can affect everyone at any age at, and in every sphere of life. It's almost certain that you or someone close to you will be affected by depression, addiction or anxiety at some stage in your lives. The symptoms show themselves in supposedly minor ways, such as dissatisfaction with your current job or working so hard and receiving so little satisfaction. Or they can be life-threatening, such as eating disorders, bipolar, suicidal thoughts, psychosis, or schizophrenia. Some 50% of millennials and 60% of Generation Z are, are afflicted with mental health challenges. At present, 75% of young people with mental health problems in the UK are not receiving treatment. Suicide is a leading cause of death in men and women aged 20 to 34, and even more so for men aged 34 to 60. And the remedies that people turn to, such as heavy drinking or taking opioids or prescription drugs, are more damaging than the symptoms they seem to alleviate. Antidepressant medications have almost doubled in the past 10 years. What begins by searching for something, quote, to take the edge off, spirals into opioid dependence, early morning drinking, and then drinking at any time. Insomnia is often associated with dependency, and so too is anxiety and depression. It's debatable what comes first, the, the addiction or the anxiety, but all around us are the tensions and stresses of the modern world. So the key risk to mental health now from COVID is loneliness due to social isolation. It's a paradox that cutting ourselves off from others is essential for the physical well-being of our species, but it's a disaster for mental well-being because we are social creatures. Those who rely on Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, Narcotics Anonymous, or other support groups have lost their entire well-being family, making them even vulnerable, even more vulnerable. So that's a brief overview of the pandemic that uh, existed before uh, COVID and has continued to grow with COVID. 
So now I'd like to call on each of my distinguished guest panelists, who I'm thrilled to have with me today, to speak on the theme, followed by a broader discussion of the points raised. So, first of all, Joseph Maguire. Over to you, Joseph. David, thank you so much for the invitation and for your uh, very lucid and articulate uh, uh, reading there. And uh, yes, we are in very strange times and no doubt they're going to become stranger because I can see no, um, I, I have no doubt that the long-term effects of what we're experiencing, the social isolation, et cetera, and the problems relating to that are going to be, the impact of that is going to be massive, way beyond anything we're currently experiencing. Uh, I know um, personally, I haven't experienced many of the issues you've mentioned, but certainly the suicidal ideation has been part of my past, uh, depression also. And um, I know from, uh, as anecdotal, I guess, but a cousin of mine works on a suicide helpline here in Ireland. And he tells me certainly in Ireland, there's a tsunami coming down the tracks. He's getting regular calls from eight and nine year olds at this stage yeah. who are considering. And this was before COVID. I know the, I know the figures for uh, domestic violence are increasing rapidly here. Um, I know, uh, again, it's, it's anecdotal, but um, I know the, the um, domestic abuse section of the guards are even getting calls from women praying that pubs would be open because the only relief they get from abuse is when their husbands are too drunk to abuse them. Um, it's, uh, it's a pretty horrific scenario. So the, on the, the flip side of it is that those of us who have been through the mill, who have been through the fire, need to speak up, need to contribute where we can and to be as mindful. I don't mean that in the sense of the, the buzzword that is mindfulness, which is tossed around so freely nowadays, but genuinely mindful of what, we can, what we've been through, how it's impacted on us, how we've learned, how we've strengthened ourselves and how we can use those experiences and the skills we've derived from them to benefit others. Yeah, there's some really powerful advice, um, Joseph. Um, so mo moving on, we, we, the next uh, panelist was going to be Dr. Susie Mitchell. Unfortunately, she has a family um, emergency. So we now move on to uh, Mike Stevenson, uh, who's going to uh, give his thoughts on mental health for all. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I... I was talking at a school last year and there were 15 and 16 year olds. And one of the things I said to them was, you know, people say to you, these are the best days of your life. What should we do? We tell children that they're in the best time of their life when they're spotty, they're anxious, they're, they're being bullied, they're not doing well at school, they're, they're, they're fearful of their future and they've got difficult relationship with their parents. So we're saying to them effectively, life's going to get worse. And I tell them the reverse, that life's going to get better. Uh, and it's like you've lifted a boulder off their shoulder because we have, in effect, you know, created, you know, through economics, um, through the way we function as a society, um, you know, a nursery for poor mental health. And uh, I think just now we are seeing, you know, I mean, I can tell you from direct experience because... A friend of mine tried to commit suicide yesterday and, and failed. And 
it is this space that people are in where they just do not know where they belong. And I, I think a lot of it goes back to alienation. You know, if you've got people outside the body economics, if you've got people who are living alone at home and are isolated, and we become increasingly fragmented as societies. You know, the old structures seem to have disappeared. Families have become much more disparate. You know, people move about. And my own experience is, is one of very early age, you know, failure at school. I wasn't stupid. I just didn't fit in with the compliance that was needed in a classroom. And, you know, things really spiraled out of control. I ended up sleeping out. Uh, for a year, I ended up getting treated for depression and asthma as well. It was a pretty toxic combination. I couldn't breathe and I couldn't think uh, straight either. And my whole, you know, the way I've got out of it is just by doing things. It's by doing things. It's by having a purpose. And, you know, I'm fixing this purpose, so I might lose the vehicle that helps me to achieve that purpose, but I never lose the purpose. And I do talk a lot about this, but I see so many people now, the figures in Scotland are, as you say, Joseph, in Ireland, more and more young people who don't have access to services because they're completely overstretched. Um, my girlfriend works in the Mental Welfare Commission and they have a spiraling. One of the particular groups recently that's high on the suicide watch list are Polish men because Polish men come here and they don't have the same linguistic skills as the women and they don't absorb so well into the population as the women do. So there are all kinds of groups now emerging as really damaged by all of this. And I, and I think we have to speak out, we have to give our own experience, and we have to you know, give a sense that the best is yet to come. Because if you're young and you think that these are the best days of your life and you're spiraling out of control into anxiety and depression, my God, how are you going to feel when someone says it's going to get worse? Yeah. Yeah, social breakdown is very much uh, a part of it, an enormous part of it. You're quite right, uh, Mike. And uh, also the, the, the situation will, will spiral uh, unless we uh, give people the hope of and purpose. I, I like what you said very much about purpose. Um, you know, to somehow go through and see something beyond uh, what they're currently experiences, which is non-stop uncertainty and um, breakdown all over the place, family as, as well. So thank you very much for that. Um, so moving on now to uh, Teresa Herzog, who is going to speak to us on the same theme. Good afternoon to all of you. I'm. Um... Asian by nature, but living in Berlin, so I've got the best of both worlds, or the worst of both worlds, um, as you choose to, to see and experience. But um, I think the last seven months have been the greatest eye-opener for me in terms of um, mental health, because it brought home a lot of things right at, it dropped a lot of things right up at our doorstep, for example. Um, family ties, much as you love your family, your parents or your children, when you're locked inside with them 24 seven, uh, you don't feel that kind and generous and loving anymore. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, um, 
it you just the, the space isn't enough the space that you were used to uh for your equilibrium for being able to express yourself being able to to fulfill your your needs in many ways just fell apart so this lack of socialization i saw it uh with my daughter and myself my daughter was studying in italy and had to flee uh the italian situation of lockdown and came to visit me and got stuck in the german lockdown so um literally from <laughs> from the frying pan into the fire and um in spite of the fact that we have a very good family relationship a very good mother-daughter relationship this just um reaches its melting point uh, like everybody else this lack of socialization for the younger generation and for me as a writer um it's the first time in many years that i just experienced writer's block you know you would think you you go into this whole lockdown and say yay i can finally sit down and write i have all the time in the world but you're sitting there and you said i don't have the inspiration i don't have the connection i can't bounce ideas of anyone and it took me the longest time to get used to to this whole virtual socialization zoom what was something very alien and and it has become a mental crutch for for a lot of us so this um i think it it comes back to to what david said in this book you know feeling understood and accepted and seen uh feeling seen i think is is one of the biggest things that um has helped a lot of people through this and of course as joseph says um it has a dark side to it as well you know with a lot of things germany we are privileged here that where the mental health services are very good um i know from firsthand experience having been in therapy in it and being able to access it firsthand um but they're also reaching their capacities you know they they said they've never been this full they've never they've never had to deal with so many generations at the same time and having to throw uh some some people out because they said um sorry we can't take you in anymore so it, it it's reaching that melting point where nobody knows what to do anymore mm. in this situation yes and we're not getting a great lead from from politicians no um we we're, we're not hearing anything really from public figures well a few exceptions yes some celebrities talking about mental health awareness but as a concerted effort this seems to be you know very much lacking and we still have this stigma associated with mental health somehow um for men for men in particular yeah absolutely right mine um so yeah a lot to think of there for our discussion in a minute um so now i'd like to call on uh, simon haig um to give us his thoughts thank you david and it's great to be here and it was great to hear everybody beforehand and and, and an ongoing theme that i've heard is the theme of disconnectedness and I come from, I probably tick, I definitely tick two of those three boxes. Um, I've lived a life of anxiety slash imposter syndrome and addiction. And, um, and my family has ticked all three boxes and I lost my mother to alcohol. I've just recently put my 77 year old father into a care home 
as a result of alcohol. And um, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in what flicks the switch for people to move into addiction and to a, another extent, depression. And for me, I think it's about being disconnected. And I think, David, you mentioned on a recent podcast that we've never been more connected from, you know, as a result of technology, but we've probably never been more disconnected. Um, and I, I think a lot of this really does, uh, Joseph mentioned childhood trauma. I think there's an element of genetics and addiction and, and depression, but, but I think I, I've done a lot of studying in this space. And I think there are very few people who don't experience severe trauma or at least some sort of lack of peer or family support, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, who don't then end up in, you know, these dark places. And, and I certainly experienced all that. And for me, you know, alcohol was, was the crutch. It was like a, a cloak, um, a cloak protecting me, or I thought it protected me against my own fears, but it actually grabs you by the neck eventually. And, and I, I think so many people are experiencing a kind of annoying emptiness, particularly now, you know, and, and uh, you know, the dis disconnection from, from, what we were used to. I think there's a kind of a, a feeling of futility about the future. And, um, and I think the sooner we realize that we need to connect more as human beings and really, really need to work on how we go about connecting um, uh, and allow people to feel some sort of sense of renewed purpose together. Um, I, think, I think we really need to be thinking much more deeply about, about working on these things. Um, I think, I, I kind of describe it, David, as the hole in the soul. For me, I mean, I'm in AA, right? Um, and But I say I, I've suffered from what I call a hole in the soul, a feeling of disconnectedness, futility, lack of hope. And I think hope, I often talk about that pinch of hope. A pinch of hope got me out of a dark place, a really, really dark place. And so I think, you know, we all need to think about how we can, and governments as well, how we can manifest a pinch of hope into programs, into some sort of recovery. I don't know what it is, but I think it's all about hope. I think it's also about allowing people to, I, social media has a lot to answer for. I think social media kind of leads people by the nose furtively and passively. And, and it's sort of, there's a surreptitious way of dragging you in. Um, but I think when that happens, it effectively, you know, we're effectively handing over our lives to forces that are really outside of our own core central awareness. And so I think getting back to being human and reconnecting with each other and, and, and giving each other, like you're doing here, that pinch of hope, you know, you know, Joseph has mentioned the dark journey he's been on. I've been on a horrendous one. I know Mike has as well. And you, I don't know Teresa, Teresa's journey, but but, but hopefully by doing this, we are spreading just another little pinch of hope. Oh, yeah. So disconnectedness is, is a real issue. Yes. And finding connection and sharing and uh, building networks that allow people to be who they are, which is maybe, you know, they're fragile or broken. And to tell people, other people in their network about that, that's a big, very big step. We don't seem to have any kind of real support networks for that. Um, and that could be within schools, uh, it could be within the workplace, etc. There could be, for example, in the workplace, the well-being room or whatever it is that people go to to 
to discuss things sometimes. Um, we don't seem to make the first steps really, which is surprising to, you know, because mental health uh, issues have been around for a long time. And now we need some kind of concerted effort to, to spread the, not only the awareness, but the, the support for it uh, um, around much more broadly, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, connection very much uh, and building your support network or offering a support network of some sort. It doesn't have to be a highly specialized psychiatric network, etc., or psychiatric advice, but it does need to be uh, some places where you can be yourself um, and share. Uh, I know that one of my big uh, problems, my big issues that lasted for years and years and years was that I told myself that I wasn't uh, an alcoholic and that I didn't have a problem. So, you know, that's the number one thing. And nobody actually said to me, you are an alcoholic. Very, very, I think pretty much nobody. Um, maybe back in the 80s, it was, uh, you know, less awareness than now. Um, but it's surprising that uh, what lack of education. Now we have, you know, we have resources, we have education. We should be moving forward on a much wider front. Right? Mm. So um, I, I'd like to just open the, the floor to some some wider discussion and what people feel um, about these issues and how, and most importantly of all, how can we, you know, do something concrete ourselves or in our lives or in our uh, professions or whatever to, to uh, help this uh, mental health uh, awareness platform um, become something much further. Yeah. Uh, can I just share that, uh, you know, uh, for me, I think it goes back to childhood and uh, I'm getting involved in a couple of initiatives around bringing soft skills, awareness, uh, not really training, but just bringing a bit of awareness around soft skills, resilience, awareness, matching your confidence with your capability, the ability to question, the ability to listen with some younger people, you know, students mm. and, and, Looking back, you know, nobody ever taught me any of this stuff. I don't remember being having any of this stuff raised at school or university. I did an MBA. Nobody mentioned this stuff. And yet, mm. um, it's you know, I, I did religious education at school. I studied an MBA. I did law degrees, all this stuff. But the most important stuff is the stuff I've just mentioned about is if you can't navigate, if you, if you don't have a self, sense of self and situational awareness, if you're living in this kind of numb, online, disconnected world, what kind of anchor do you have for yourself um, and in relation to others? So I think for me, I'm passionate about trying to get some of this stuff into younger people. Whether they're going to listen to it or not is up to them. But I think we owe it to the younger generations just to raise these flags with them and let, let it sit in, sort of sift into their consciousness. I think that's really important. Yeah. I think uh, I wrote um, about it recently. Sorry. Uh, that yeah. I, we have this industry a resilience industry. And I think it's a shame that we have to teach children resilience because resilience is something that actually comes fairly organically. If you're doing things like activities, if you're involved in the arts, if you're doing dance, you're doing drama. Um, and those have been, you know, 
greatly uh, reduced in schools in this country, which is tragic. And at the same time, we've got this, this new narrative where we call young people snowflakes, which you know, we've developed this, this notion that young people are somehow weak and they don't have any of the experience, the, the resilience that we do. And I don't think that's true. I think we've created a much more fragmented environment where, you know, just the feeling of feeling valued and feeling significant is not there for a lot of young people. And the other thing a teacher told me, uh, she was a head teacher actually in a, in a pretty poor area. And she said, you know, children go to private schools to get educated and a lot of children come here to be loved. And, you know, you think about that, it's true. And she said, you know, the, the problem is we can't put our arm around them. You know, all previous generations had this mm. element of touch. You know, mm. and I remember sleeping out and I remember the first person that touched me, it was in Kensington Antique Market, in Kensington, obviously. And it was a woman who was selling petula oil. This is back in the 60s. And she touched my face and it was just like, you know, uh, suddenly this frisson, and it was nothing sexual or, or sensual about it. It was just, you feel something when someone touches you. It's, it's, it's a genuine human connection. And we've taken that away from young people. And, you know, in America, uh, they did research and they found that in, you know, one city in America, um, lifers in prison get more time outside than the children do, which is astonishing. So all those things that we enjoy, a bit of freedom to roam, you know, a bit of risk taking, those are the things that build resilience and we've taken them away. So we now have to create a resilience industry and it's very hard to teach children resilience. Mm. You know, it's, it's hard to say, this is what you do when you come up against a crisis or when you come up against this, sort of, you know, this feeling in your head that you're in despair, that there's nowhere to go, there's no hope. It's very hard to provide a narrative. But life itself should do that. And we have to restore some of those things to life that used to exist. Um, not all of them, my God. You know, lots of things are better. But there are some things that we have seen a decline in. And I think human connection and this, you know, this community that would once value you doesn't seem to exist anymore. And it happens when you get to buy it. When you reach 70, you know, suddenly people say, haven't you retired yet? You know, it's like you've kind of gone over the hump. Your 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 value has somehow diminished, and I'm I'm just as energetic and just as enthusiastic about doing what I do. And I speak. That's what I do. I speak, mm. and I have to keep making myself feel valued by getting out there and saying, "Look, I'm here." I'd I'd like to pick up on that point, uh, Mike, and and tie yeah. it up with what Simon mentioned earlier this need for connection and, and speaking out and building resilience. I think um, I've been very vocal about it, uh, that I, I hate social media with a passion because it has created virtual worlds yes. where everybody hides behind. Yep. One word that really sets me off is influencer. I hate the word with a passion <laughs> um, because we, we've They've created worlds for themselves. I mean, influencer, you don't, you don't, either you influence somebody or you're not, but you don't call yourself a darn influencer. I'm sorry. Um, and, and, and you have, you have all this cyber bullying that is going on. It, it, 
children don't go out and play in a playground anymore. I grew up, I grew up in Kenya where I ran around uh, with, with children in the compound uh, around trees. And, and my father-in-law used to tell me also when, when my daughter was born, that child better eat one pound of dirt a day. Otherwise she's not having a real childhood. And I, I looked at him and I said, well, yeah, he's right. You know, the concept of sandboxes and, and playing and just getting out, even just having a fight with the next kid in the playground. None of that is happening. Everybody's sitting at home on a couch behind a tablet or behind this, 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 it's a false connection that we, that the younger generation is, is espousing or is living at the moment. Is it, I've got 50,000 friends. I go, yeah, how many of them are real? How many of them do you actually know? Mm, yeah. This, this ability to reach out and connect and have conversation. I think that, I think looking at uh, you four gentlemen, I think we all belong to the same generation more or less and say, we learned how to speak the hard way. You know, we didn't have, we didn't have social media. Some of us didn't even have phones sometimes, you know, or you weren't allowed on the phone. Yeah. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you want to learn how to have a conversation. And I think this is what build our resilience. That this is what the joint, this is where this lack of resilience comes from. This inability to have a conversation, this mm. inability to connect with other, with, with other people, you know, you, you get caught in a corporate world and say, okay, you have this, this pressure to perform, this pressure to be the power person, to, to carry out a role. But what's the real you? You take away the trimmings and can you have a decent conversation at, at family dinner in the evenings? Or uh, how many of you still have breakfast together? Do you all just run separate ways? Um, I mean, how many families talk to each other within the same house via text? You know, my mother would have a cow if I if I send her. God, God bless her soul. But you know, I when I taught my mother how to how to use her mobile phone for emergency, she said, "No, I'll just scream and 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 shout it for the neighbor." And, 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 you know, this is something very simple that I care with me. And she's, she had a point. You know, we, 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 we've become addicts of technology. Mm. And I think we've lost parts of our soul in the process. We've lost our humanity in the process to this darn technology. It's mm. a saving grace, but it's also it's a double-edged sword. Absolutely, absolutely. And just like Teresa has a, a reaction and an aversion to the term influencer, I have a distinct reaction to the term soft skills. I know Simon used it in a very positive manner there, but to me, they're essential skills. And I, I think it follows on from what Mike was saying as well, the whole thing of resilience and uh, adaptability and all the things we learned growing up because we engaged in sport, art, physical activity, being outdoors, etc. And I, um, a friend of mine recently was telling me of a story. Uh, her 17-year-old son was invited to a birthday party and she drove him there. She's a single parent, drove him there and collected him afterwards. And when he got back in the car on, on, after the party, he was really subdued. And she asked him what happened. Was it was, you know, did you not enjoy it? And he said, no, it was terrible. His friend's mother, when they all came into the house, took their phones and put them away. <laughs> And they, they all sat around in the room and they had to talk to each other and they didn't know how. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite shocking, but that's the way many kids are growing up. Uh, my 
when my my kids uh, are 33 31 and 29 now but my middle child my older daughter uh, had relationship difficulties a number of years ago and um, I asked her do you, you know, she's uh, she's in the same sex she or she was in the same sex relationship at the time and I asked her do you do you speak to your your, your girlfriend and she said yeah we text regularly oh. and, and I thought I thought I'd raise them a little more uh, uh, creatively than that and with, with more awareness but it's it's a rampant issue and you mentioned uh, you mentioned the, the cyberbullying that's that's increasingly on the, that's on, on the increase as we know and again the number of kids who are not just taking their own lives but actively thinking about it and who are so isolated the number of kids on, in Ireland who are calling childline for help where the the, the line the childline has has been massively underfunded the funding has been reduced and yet the the calls are the calls are ramping up in like at a, at a ridiculous rate. Uh, so we definitely need to find ways to bring in these soft skills, essential skills, to bring in the resilience that Mike was talking about, to have kids playing outdoors, as you were talking about, Teresa, eating the pound of dirt or whatever a day, because we need to connect people with, we need to connect kids at a very early age with what we would call, I guess, the real world and have them engaging in a very earthed, grounded way and, and grounding itself is recognized now increasingly as a tech as a technique in itself for well-being actually having our feet bare and on the earth yeah uh, so there are so many so many simple ways that we can benefit kids growing up and have, have lasting influence and i mean in a positive way not not in the social media sense yeah. uh, but it does start with us because as david so rightly said we're not seeing that from government we're not seeing that from institutions so anybody who has some of the learning, some of the skills and some of the contacts to, to, uh, to, to bring about, to bring about that re-education, um, we have to do it in whatever way we can. And creating a round table, creating connections like this, we can support each other and create, uh, bring, bring new ideas to the table for each other and uh, hopefully spread the network that way as well. Yeah. Can I, can I also add about, the vacuum of leadership in the world from older people. And I mean, our generations and older and slightly younger than our generations as well. And I'll give you an example, you know, last Sunday, my two daughters who are 20 and 21 wanted my wife and I to sit around and watch the, um, the new um, David Attenborough documentary uh, on Netflix, which was basically his, basically his will and testament to mankind, humankind. And, and it was pretty depressing, right? It was pretty depressing for two people in their 50s who are kind of part of the, 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 the previous two or three generations who are responsible for this. And, and, I, and, I, and a week later, I keep thinking about my daughters, you know, and it's not their fault. It's not the younger generation's fault. It's the generations before. And, you know, you have people like Trump criticizing Greta Thunberg and you have, you know, there's a real leadership vacuum around the world, right? A real yeah. leadership vacuum. And there's also a leadership vacuum in businesses, generally speaking. And, and I think the quicker, the quicker some of this, some of the older generations can move on and allow the younger generations the benefit of the doubt. And, and Mike, you were saying, you know, you were rally, you're railing against this, um, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the the, the, being derogatory towards younger people. And, you know, I've had an amazing opportunity in the last year to start training younger people at an American college. And, and it's, it was interesting, you know, my own biases, even though I'm the father of two 
20, 21 year olds. I also thought, because I'm on social media, I also assume that young, young people are, are, uh, are useless, are wasters, are lazy. Mm-hmm. And I was blown away when I gave a course at IES abroad here in, in, in Ireland, an American college, just how studious, how caring, how sensitive, how sexually liberated, how socially liberated they are. Because I'd never spent time with 18 to 20, 20, 18, 19, 20, Mm -hmm. 21s outside my own family. So I suffer from that middle-aged, middle-class white man bias as well. So I think we really, really need to address leadership in this world right now. There is something about politics as well. I mean, I, you cannot separate. I mean, in Scotland, it's different. Scotland's got much more of a communitarian view of the world. And I think it's probably like Ireland in that sense. But the Boris Johnson government and the Trump's government, and by the way, Britain and the US have got the highest mental health increases. So that tells you something. The whole system is built on envy. Boris Johnson says this, you know, uh, the market economy is built on, you see your neighbor has bought a shinier car than you have. And you say to yourself, I'm going to get myself a new car that's shinier than his or hers. You know, that is how the economy is run. And influencers, when you look at who the influencers are, Kim Kardashian is, every time she she wears something or shows a product, she gets a million dollars. That's the value of it. You know, so that is the society we've created. And the economy is based on, you know, some people getting all the wealth and then any crumbs that are spilt, you know, people might pick them up. It's different in Germany. It's different in Scandinavian countries. It's different in New Zealand. But here we have gone down the the uber American route, which is really destructive of mental health because it instantly devalues sections of the population. And if you feel devalued, then your behaviours are going to start responding to that. You know, if Mm. you know that your postcode and your parents and the school you went to are really effectively denying you a future unless you've got this incredible strength and you can you can you wade yourself through that and and clamor into you know a position that allows you to social mobility and we shouldn't be talking about social mobility i mean we should be talking about you know um social you know uh, integration, not mobility. We shouldn't have to mobilise people to go from the lowest rungs to the highest rungs because there shouldn't be a differential between the two in my world. And I'm much more optimistic about Scotland just now because Scotland has a different attitude. Mm. Uh, but we're still part of this economic system, which is, you know, a mental well-being destroyer. Mm. Mm. You can't differentiate the two, and mm. that is bad leadership. Mm. Yeah, and it seems to be Anglo-Saxon leadership too. I mean, as you say, UK and US, um, yeah, and this excessive, uh, what's the word, um, individualism. Oh, right, uh, yes. You know, everybody for their own, doesn't matter who anybody else is or what any rules are, etc. And of course, yeah. it's coming from the top because you see it every day on the news, and you, you think that that uh, spectacle is what you're given as a uh, responsible way for adults and leaders to behave. So, 
Mm. Yeah, not a pretty picture. Um, anybody else like to offer? Um, I'd, like, I'd like to jump in and provide a bit of uh, the, the situation in Germany as I've experienced, I mean, a bit of my backstory. Um, four years ago, I went through a series of personal tragedies, of, among which were the consecutive death of my parents within a month, a month of each other, and then uh, followed by divorce, and then packing up from one country and moving here halfway across the globe to start over in, in Germany on my own. So um, yeah, it, 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 that, uh, these are all the ingredients for a perfect depression and, 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 and a wonderfully colorful uh, meltdown in a city that I've never liked in the first place. Um, <laughs> uh, people wondering, oh, are you mental? I go, yeah, literally, yes. <laughs> um, so, but I discovered uh, one of the things, one of the things that makes uh, for a more stable social resilience, as you see from, from Germany, that in spite of the dark past, the his historical past, and all the rebellions going on, the, the rebellion isn't so much about um, the lack of social connection. It's more like the shadows of control again, controlling society and telling them, no, I mean, the worst thing you can do to this particular society is put them under the rule of thumb and say, no, you can't do that collectively. Um, so there's a, there's a collective rebellion going on mm. in that. But um, as an Asian, as a migrant um, in, in, in this country, um, one of the things I struggled with culturally and mentally and emotionally was this uh, frankness, this, this, this directness, dealing with directness and being told in your face, uh, you're just doing something wrong. You know, and, um, but then I realized this openness, this directness is what keeps people here literally sane because they know immediately where they stand and they're not beating around the bush and they're not hiding behind niceties and prim and proper and pomp and circumstance. Yeah. Um, it may come across as rude, it, uh, but um, you find the youth here very much engaged in conversations and discussions. It may not be the right direction, but at least they're still involved. And a lot of uh, debate, open debate um, is still is still welcome here. And um, it, it's something that uh, was, a hard, was a hard lesson to learn, the, the mm -hmm. dealing with open conversations again. But it was also my saving grace, uh, the ability to, to, to learn to reach out and say, I need help. Because I grew up in an Asian background where you swallow your pride, you swallow um, yeah. that that concept of uh, exposing your dirty laundry in public and saying, "Oh God forbid that you end up in, in, in therapy, psychotherapy, or any kind of therapy." Mental health is is still a taboo in many Asian countries, um, where you they say, "Okay, you can't do that." Um, but then it's, it's, as I learned in my journey uh, over the past months, that um, it's really being able to talk about it openly that, um, that really provides you that anchor and that stability. I mean, the more you, you keep inside, uh, the less, the less um, resilience you're able to, to build. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think so, that's, okay. yeah. I think, I think that's, so a great, I think that's a great point. And, 
you know, uh, what I'm, what connects what you've just said, Teresa, with what Mike was talking about was the what's happening within the UK and US in particular is a dishonest form of leadership. And so it's like a death by a thousand cuts. You know, the, there's this false optimism that's being peddled by Trump and Johnson in particular. Um, and what happens then is, and it happens in companies as well, I've studied this as well, is when there's false optimism from the leaders, what do human beings do? They fill the gap with anxiety, okay? Mm -hmm. They fill it with anxiety. Of course they do. And so that's what's happening around the world. And whereas what human beings need is they need that blunt, honest truth because they, to, to be able to, you know, to be able to fulfill your, you know, the ex, to, ha, to, to be able to work towards an ex, existential fulfillment of your potential or to nourish your soul, you have to have a solid ground from which to start. So I think that's a real problem is that that disingenuous, dishonest leadership just is blindsiding so many people. And, you know, as I said, again, I look at my daughters and I think when I was 20, my ambitions were kind of materialistic. I thought I'll have a car by this time, a house by this time. And it did unfold, okay. Whereas I look at my daughters and I think, what? I've had conversations with them. You know, they're saying, we're never going to get a house. We can't even afford a car. You know, what's the point kind of thing? We've, we're having these kind of conversations. And, and I think a lot of this goes back up to that confusing message at the top. Of course, there's going to be a future for this planet. Of course, unless we, you know, destroy ourselves through climate change. So let's get honest about the challenges and honestly start building a bridge to the future rather than just confusing and obfuscating everything. That's really, really important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, just going back to, I guess, it, so many of these things tied together, but going back to um, Teresa's experience of Germany, I lived here in Germany for a number of years. I was married to a German woman for, for some 20 years, so I learned a lot about the culture. Um, but so... One of the things I noticed was that the sheer, yes, all the, we were aware of the darkness, but we were also aware of the resilience, because if you look at the destruction that was visited on Germany, and we can justify it and all of that, but we look at the destruction, um, the resilience they had to show to rebuild, that's still that's still extant, still, still, still alive in the German being, the German mentality. Um, but one other thing I particularly noticed was in every neighborhood I experienced, and I moved around quite a lot, was the availability of accessible sporting facilities yeah. whether you want mm -hmm. to play football tennis uh, just do something outdoors cycle swim all of those things were available and accessible to people mm -hmm. we certainly don't have anything like that in ireland and again we i guess we all grew up being outdoors and spending time outdoors and being physically active and we can see the benefit to that for, uh, not just for our physical well-being but our emotional and mental well-being and if we don't have those facilities available and don't encourage people to be outdoors as well, then that's going to add to the burden. So that, to me, has to be also part of the solution. Yeah. So I, I look outside my window and it's a car park. You know, there's so many. It's a nice area. It's down by the waterfront. I look out and it's full of cars. You just imagine that area greened over with a couple of trees. I mean, we have... You know, developers have have not helped because we're putting up urban environments. You look at Manchester, and it's two finance companies, it's Grant Thornton and Deloitte, that are buying up all the property and building in Manchester, making people homeless. I mean, it, but the environments are grey, urban, there's no grass around. Um, you know, in Europe, they're now putting trams on grass, you know, just softening the sound, allowing drainage, allowing some wildlife. Yeah. And 
you know, we've, we've, we've done a whole lot of things that are damaging our ability to, to do things that we would do naturally. You know, children would go out to play. Um, but if it's a car park, they can't. And they can't go more than, you know, out of the sight of their parents in case they get snatched. So there's this constant anxiety about allowing children out at all. And, you know, what's the damage that's doing? Um, this, there is a way out of it. There is a way out of it. And, you know, I've got less trust in psychotherapy treatments than I do have in meeting friends who have understood and been through what I've been through. So in Edinburgh, they've created this peer support. They're putting a lot of money into it. And it seems to be much more successful. You know, people will speak to someone who has had roughly a similar experience. They're not an expert, but in a way they are because they have, they have experienced something. So they're not talking from, you know, the, the position of an expert. They're talking from the position of someone who has had lived experience. And we don't count that enough. And I think this is what the new kind of growth market is going to be. It's going to be people with lived experience, you know, who are able to offer their own kind of strategies and, you know, how, how dark did it get? And yet I'm here now, you know, so there is always hope that we never get into a situation you can't get out of. And that's just the, the, the first step, isn't it? That people yeah. really think there is no future for them. They're in a black hole. They can't see any light. They can't see anything. So just someone that says, look, there is a light. I've been there. I know what it's like. And I'll tell you what you're feeling. And when you tell someone what they're feeling, they go, yes. And then you can say, but, you know, I was there. Mm. And I'm not there now. So at least I'm proof that, you know, you've got the same capability as I had to get out of the situation. And it will come. But you've got yeah. to, to do certain things. And... You've got to meet people and you've got to emotionally connect with people. And it's this emotional connection that social media doesn't have. Yeah. It's got you know, mm. words and it's got images and, and you're also talking to people who agree with you. So you live in a very, this is because of the algorithm. Mm. You know, uh, if I, I mean, I do, don't get anything from Boris Johnson. I don't get Boris Johnson supporters on my Facebook because the algorithm has decided that I have no interest in Boris Johnson. And I don't, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that, so we're not even getting different opinions now. So we're living in a very cloistered environment and we don't have friends, we have connections. And we don't have, you know, responses and get likes or smiley faces, but that's not an emotional response. It's a click and, you know, I have, I do spend a lot of time with young people talking and, and listening. And I think young people are amazing. I, I think they're, 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 they've got skills that we wouldn't have dreamt of having, but they haven't had the experiences that we had to have growing up. And we've got to put those two things together so that they can use social media in a kind of knowing, emotional, emotionally intelligent way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I use social media. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's not, I don't live or die by it. And I don't measure my daily success by the number of likes I get. Although Simon does sometimes like what I put up. But I don't measure my life by that. 
You know, it's by by connection. And I think we've got a huge responsibility, the five of us, you yes. know, to spread the word to, and I do talk about it. I don't talk about it in a pitying way. I talk about it in, a, in an empowering way. And, you know, it's one of the things I do. And, you know, uh, I was asked to go and speak at AstraZeneca last year in Liverpool because it was International Man's Day. I didn't know there was an International Man's Day until last year. And I said, I can't just speak to the men about mental well-being for men. Everyone's got to come. But the number of men that came in after, you know, spoke to me um, was astonishing. You know, people in their 40s and 50s saying, what would I, what, what would you do if you were? So they're, it's like they've never asked that question before because no one had ever talked about their mental health with them, ever. Mm, yeah. That's yeah. so so it's so important. If you feel abandoned, then and I've been through this journey myself, the chances are you're gonna abandon yourself. And yeah. uh, you know, every Sunday morning, pretty much without fail, I meet a group of guys in the AA. Uh, and we go for a lovely walk and the ages range from about 40 to 83. And we just spend an hour walking along the sea here at Dunleary with a cup of coffee in hand. We don't go to the cafe anymore. We just walk along with coffee. And all we do is chat and chat. But, but I discussed this the other day with a very good friend in the group. And it's like, you know, those sieves that you, you sieve soil through rocks and soil. By the end of the conversation, the soil has come through and the rocks are there. And we do that by we're kind of polishing each other's psyche and soul as we're talking with each other. That's probably the best way I can describe it. Whereas when I'm by myself for a week or two, I go in on myself and the feelings of, or oh, shall I, shan't I abandon myself? They start coming up again. So that's living proof for me that I have to have that interaction with human beings to polish the soul. Yeah. Have to. I like that very much. Polish the soul. Yeah. I think what, what we can, uh, Take away from this today, then, is um, well, shall we just if we could wave a magic wand, what are the three um, action points that we could enact in our own lives um, to further mental health for all based on what we've discussed today? Anybody like to offer one, and then we can see if we can do two or three. I think I'd like to. to uh wave the flag for going stepping away from virtual virtual worlds into real worlds again mm. re-establish putting the human in in um putting back human in conversations and connections you know um i think we have and it doesn't matter what generation you're talking to whether it's our generation, whether it's the younger generation or the ones that are just learning how to walk. Um, we have gotten caught up in this electronic world. Um, and it, it's not just the animals and, and the environment that's endangered, but um, us as humans and our ability to communicate with one another, which mm. is severely endangered. So that would be helping others to, and yourselves to, to uh, make connection human above all, rather than digital or social media related, etc. So that's one. How about the second one? But we do need to recognize that for all its faults, this digital 
electronic world is not going away mm. and it's likely to become far more prevalent uh, for all for all its sins. So we do need to use that wisely and it, it behoves each of us as individuals to make sure we are putting out whatever we're putting out is very real, it's very authentic, that we're showing our vulnerability but we're showing the experience and the value of the experience we've had in coming through because yeah. from what I can gather, we've all been through some very dark times, but we've all learned immensely from it. And we've all gained, we've all deepened our own uh, qualities of resilience, qualities of grit, etc. And we've seen for many of us, I know Simon and I know each other pretty well at this point. We've shared a lot of, uh, a lot of our story. And even when we've shared the dark bits, we've both come away brighter for the experience. Um, so that willingness, that willingness to be real in what, whatever platform we have, whether it's live face to face or whether it's online, we have to continue being very, very real, but showing the yeah. benefits of being real. Being real and sharing our vulnerability. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah they, uh, that's a big, big focus um, and that we can all do because, uh, as you say, uh, we all have had dark experiences. Um, but in fact, we're, it's, it's normal. Yeah. Everybody has had dark experiences at some stage. So what we're doing really is sharing with, with everyone something that they can relate to. So we yeah. can do as much work as we can on that front. Yeah. Um, and finally, number three. I, I, I think I think I just uh, I think to reiterate, you know, the outside world, I think we, we really need to be, fo you know, there's been all sorts of studies that prove that if you spend out more time outside, you know, it's good for the psyche. And even if you're inside and you look, look at pictures and photos of the outside, it actually lifts your spirit. So I really think we need to be focusing much more instead of building more you know, hypermarkets and shopping centers, more farmers markets here outside. And, you know, you can dress up and stay warm and, and, and more cycle paths. I, I'm all for all of that sort of stuff and more sports facilities as much as we can do outside or at yes. least simulate outside is critically, critically important. Absolutely, Simon. I mean, the, the Japanese have a, have a phrase, um, have a philosophy um, uh, of forest bathing yeah. You know, for, for all the family and for everybody, including in the company, they go forest bathing. There's some very nice word for it, like Shinryoku or something like that. Um, but uh, it's part essential part of Japanese life. And I think we, the more we can do to go out in nature, breathe with the trees, um, jog, hike, etc., um, the better it will be for our mental health and for the mental health of others who we can support and show them also that there's nature out there, not just a car park, Absolutely. right? So I, I really thank you all um, for coming today, for sharing this with me. Yeah. And um, I think all we have to do now is go out and make uh, mental health for all uh, reality for more and more people in their lives as well. And that any way that we can do it through our skills experience and uh, expertise. So thank you a lot, um, Joseph, Mike, Teresa, and Simon. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thank, thank, you. Pleasure. thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. <laughs>